Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's conversation is with a absolute legend in the world of not just knocking people's heads off in the UFC, but also as a humanitarian. Justin Wren is one of the kindest, sweetest, most dangerous men that uh, I know. And I'm greatly appreciative to be able to bring him here today in this conversation. This was a super, super intimate conversation. We get into not just his successes. In fact, we kind of grazed over a lot of his successes and focused more on his experience with bullying, being bullied particularly, and a primary chunk of the conversation was actually about ending one's life and his experience with that. So for that reason, I think this is one of the most important conversations that we've ever had here on the Alliant Podcast and um, highly recommend. Share it with some friends. There might be some people out there. In fact, absolutely, statistically, there are many people that could use some helping words from a guy like Justin. And he is a, a real, true, genuine hero in the world. He's responsible for the Fight for the Forgotten Foundation, which helps pygmies in the Congo, and um, they also support other humanitarian efforts. He is a UFC fighter. He's a Bellator fighter. He's a published author. He's amazing. So I'm really stoked to get to share this conversation with you guys. If you are interested and share with your friends, please do. You can tag Justin Ren on the Instagram, tag me in a line podcast. If you'd like to do a good deed for the day, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes, on Spotify, wherever it is that you digest and masticate your audio information. Por favor, shoot us over a sweet review. I really greatly appreciate them, and it helps the algorithmic gods know that people are tuning in this podcast, and it helps with sharing it. All right, let's hit it with my guy, Justin Motherflippin' Ren. Pow. Having my mom on the podcast was one of the more therapeutic decisions I could have made, I would say. Cool. How's your relationship with your mom? Good. Yeah? Yeah. Good. I've got to show you uh, real quick. She's on Please. the favorites, right? On the favorites, so it's easy course. to find. Yeah. First one on the favorites. Damn. What does that say? Best mom ever. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I am a mama's boy, but also um, she's just the best in a way of like in relationships, she won't take my side. <laughs> she she calls it like it is, and she'll call me out. Mm. She's super positive, but she's an incredibly hard worker. She's like a, a great businesswoman in her own right, entrepreneur, owns a lot of different properties. But growing up, she went through some really, really traumatic stuff. And she overcame that in many ways. She became one of the strongest people in her family, I'd say like a pillar in the family, where... Let's see, she became a two-time state champion in tennis, but she was also a two-time national champion in barrel racing for horses. She still plays tennis now. This sounds crazy, but she's overcame MS twice. She's been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. As a child, I saw her declining. Then all of a sudden, her two lesions on her spinal cord disappeared. And then when I was living in the Congo with the Pygmy people, I called her on a satellite phone. And she told me the news that she was re-diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She was being really heat sensitive, couldn't play tennis anymore. And again, her uh, MS disappeared. 
even though she was showing all the symptoms, it's on actual MRI scans. Anyway, she's back to playing tennis. Uh, she was just down here at Horseshoe Bay not too long ago, uh, right outside of Austin where we are now. Yeah. And she was dominating the tournament, and she won uh, a Fort Worth tennis championship too, playing against girls that are in their 30s. And my mom's only 54, but she's, uh, she's active, she's healthy, she's positive. I was a wrestler and state champion, national champion, lived at the Olympic Training Center. I remember my thumb would dislocate, and I uh, did that 13 different times. And my dad was saying one time, we need to take him to the ER. She's like, he's got another match. Just tape it up, <laughs> you know? So she was always great, but she's a competitor. Mm. She's a competitor. She's very driven. And so I, I think I picked up a lot of those attributes. I wonder with you, you completely told me this, this story of the origination of you training to become a killer. Yeah. Outside. And it's interesting. So many of the people that I know that, that are the most dangerous in the sense of their capacity to be dangerous, are oftentimes the, the sweetest human beings that I know. Mm. Kyle Kingsbury is another example yes. of that. Where he's like, just a, a killer, but he's like the sweetest teddy bear, kind-hearted, light, like, oh, you just yeah. can't help but hug him. Right. And he has all the tools to destroy you. Yeah. You are that. Hey, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Like, how does, how does that start for, what do you think that, can, that, that relationship um, is? I think, especially the guys at the highest level, they don't need to prove it. They already have. So what I mean by that is once you know that you can do what you can do, a lot of ego falls off. You know, you don't need to engage with people that want to size you up or things like that. But I think for me, in most fighters, even in 3.4 million or 3.9 million, something like that, martial artists as kids right now in the United States, that's how many people well, pre-COVID were competing in martial arts, they say over half of them found martial arts because they were bullied. Mm-hmm. So martial artists oftentimes aren't the bully. They're the ones that have been bullied. And then through that, like I did, uh, found self-confidence. Took a while, but you know your coaches believe in you, and it's, a, it's truly an art form. It's art and movement. And just like yoga or the acro yoga that you were doing with me before this started. But I think most martial artists that truly treat it like that. You know, what's a black belt? It's just a white belt who never quit. You know, and you learn resilience, you learn how to handle adversity, how to handle loss with grace instead of being a poor sport. And, you know, you get humbled on the mats a lot to get to the top. If you're the best one in the room, you're in the wrong room. And so you got to cross train, you got to challenge yourself, you got to overcome, you got to be put in the worst case scenario and then decide. Am I going to sink or swim? Am I going to give up or am I going to find a way out of this? You probably have thought quite a bit into the the psyche of a bully, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think's going on in there? I think the simplest way to put it is probably just hurt people hurt people. And so I think most bullies have been hurt in their life. I even was with some people that were studying this and they said 9 out of 10 bullies you can actually change. You can help them create new behavior patterns. But there's that one out of 10 that has kind of those narcissistic, almost psychotic or psychopathic, uh, they don't have empathy. Yeah, I definitely dealt with one of those growing up. But I think most of them feel like they get something out of it. They get a rise out of that person. They feel personal power. They feel the enjoyment of making others laugh that are seeing it happen. 
And whenever you look at the statistics in bullying that the CDC did, third at risk of suicide in a bullying situation, which from ages 10 to 24 right now in the United States, the number two cause of death is suicide. And the number on the bullying scale, the bully's third at risk. The victim is actually second at risk. So you think about who's number one. Well, it's the person that is bullied and then they act out by being a bully also. So they're conflicted on both sides. They're being bullied. And to cope with that, they become a bully themselves. And now they never feel peace because they know how it feels and then they act out in that way too. And so there's just this internal conflict where they don't feel worthiness unless they take back that control and make someone else feel unworthy. I think is how you would kind of explain that. But a lot of bullies have been hurt at home and they take it out at school. You know, maybe it's a dad, maybe it's an older brother, and then they're around their peers where now they're maybe bigger than or stronger than, or maybe they're, they've been spoken down to in such a brutal way at home by dad or, or mom. And they know how bad that hurts. And that's their outlet. That's their way that they get some sort of release is by using what's been used on them. You know, One of the things I do in fighting in a, in a very different way is whenever, whenever something works, whenever I get hit with a certain shot or caught with a certain submission in training, I'm like, whoa, what was that? I take notes. And I'm like, I'm going to learn how to do that. And I think it's part of that survival instinct that's in us. And then you learn how to craft and learn how to be dangerous or strong or how to fight back. And in a bullying situation, like it's, it's really sad. Like our youth don't know who has the most power in the situation. It's actually not the faculty. It's not the principal. It's not the disciplinaries. It's actually the bystander. The bystander has the most power in a bullying situation because nine times out of 10, or I think 87% of the time, a bystander goes from being a silent supporter because they'll, they'll think they're an innocent bystander, right? But really, they're a silent supporter. If you see it, hear it, you didn't choose it. It chose you, but now you're presented with an opportunity, or at least a choice. The choice is to do nothing, or the opportunity is to do something. And if you just stand up and say one thing, speak up and say, hey, that's not kind. Whether it's in school or in the corporate workplace or out and about, you know, you're at a restaurant and you see a guy talking down to his waitress or talking down to the guy behind the cash register. You know, people are people. And just because they're wearing a name badge and they're serving you, it doesn't mean you get to talk to them however you want. And so when those kind of things happen, now I feel prompted to speak up on someone's behalf. Because I know 87% of the time it stops in five seconds. And then if you have to say something a second time, it goes up to like 93, 94%. The thing that I'm interested in particularly is uh, the sensation that you felt during that kind of like peak bullying experience. I felt, and for 20 years, I was stuck in a thought loop when things didn't go my way or I felt like I made a mistake or when I was battling addiction. I think one of the reasons I became an addict, one, there's an addict brain. I mean, that's proven by science that you have too few dopamine receptors and whenever you have that substance, now all of a sudden it's one, it can be like, well, you know, where's this been my whole life? But the best way to explain, I think, through science, and this TED Talk I watch and other things is like, your brain now 
prioritizes it for survival. Like as a hunter-gatherer mind, this drug, this substance now says this is the most important thing for me to survive. But it all stems from a way to cope most times. Cope with childhood trauma, PTSD, some sort of wounding. And those woundings don't have to be brutal childhood abuse, sexual assault. I've dealt with both of those in my upbringing, but sometimes it's it's just a feeling of unworthiness that drives you those addictions. But basically that thought loop that I would go on was in this moment of bullying in front of my all the cool kids at my school, I dressed up for a costume party. No one else did. When I got there, you know, I was greeted by my peers and the girl I had a big crush on, biggest crush since elementary, middle, and high school, like all throughout my, I guess, academic career. And uh, I was dressed up. No one else was. It was all pre-planned, premeditated. I went, how do they say that in basketball? I went hard, went in, the hard in the paint. There did you go. Research. I did. You're like, this is my shit. I did. It was a yeah, full court press. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I decided I would try to catch her eye because I, I, I didn't know why I really got invited to the party, but I was excited I was. And I was given an invitation that said, uh, come to her party, and it was decorated. And anyways, her dad worked at Dr. Pepper. It's actually a big thing in Texas culture. You're going to have to get used to that. I know, I've got to learn about it. Yeah, I used to love Dr. Pepper. Mr. Pibb was my shit, too. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got that yeah. both. That doesn't, that doesn't work in uh, Sorry. Texas here. No. We use Mr. Pibb for uh, carp fishing. We put Mr. Pibb on, or Big Red on. Anyways. But her dad worked at Dr. Pepper. It was a costume contest. Winner was going to get a prize. It was going to be a Dr. Pepper gumball machine with Dr. Pepper flavored gumballs. I thought that was awesome. And, you know, rumors at school, because I never been to her house, was that her house was decorated with like the old vintage signs of like Dr. Pepper and they had a Dr. Pepper machine in their house, a Dublin Dr. Pepper, which is a town in Texas, Dublin, Texas. We've got Paris. We've got every every big city in the world. We've got a Texas that, London, Texas, all, all those different things. But anyways, this was from Dublin, Texas. And real cane sugar, imperial cane sugar. Anyways, I don't need to get all in the details, but she loved Transformers. Everyone was talking, especially my notorious middle school bully, was talking about what we're going to wear. People are going to go as Avengers or... Batman, Superman, different things like that. Well, I decided I was going to go as her favorite Transformer. She loved Transformers, and her favorite was Optimus Prime. But since it was Dr. Pepper themed, and they had that all in their house, me and my mom, best mom ever, she really tried to help me go all out. So I saved up my allowance. I bought 24 packs, 12 packs. I bought everything I could find. And the reason I got this inspiration was it was around Super Bowl time, and they put up those... I don't know, you call them those action figures of, uh, oh, there's a football player that was uh, made of the Dr. Pepper like cardboard. I don't know if you've ever seen those at a grocery store, but they'll like make figures yeah, and sure, they'll be sure, standing. Sure. And uh, sometimes yeah. they got guitars and cowboy hats. Yeah. But this one was a football player and it just dawned on me like, oh, I could go as that. You know, a Dr. Pepper Transformer. I'm going to go as Dr. Optimus Pepper. And uh, my mom thought it was a great idea. We live in the country, so I uh, you just got some duct tape. You can fix anything with duct tape. You can make anything with duct tape. And so, um, yeah, 24-pack on my head, 12-packs on my arm, chest plate, a shield, a sword. Holy crap. Uh, and uh, I get there, and her grandmother opened the door, Mimi, and she was shocked, surprised, but was like, oh, my gosh, she's going to love this. And so I go to the backyard, but before I do, I push the button, get the Dr. Pepper out, and... Walk to the backyard, door opens. I'm blasted with a couple flashes of light. My eyes adjust while I hear the sound of laughter. And 
yeah. Um, Jennifer says, I can't believe you thought you were good enough to come to my party. And Tyler said, you're worthless. And Justin, who was my bully from third to eighth grade, and I'd done something also brutal before this, um, he said, you should just kill yourself. And so at 13, you know, it's hard now, right? Like you're susceptible to believe the things people say about you more than you believe the things that you know about you. So at 13, you know, already being bullied, sitting at the lunch table by myself most times or oftentimes, being pelted in the back of the head with chocolate milk, spit wads, food, or fist as kids walked by. Um, I already felt worthless, but I just hadn't verbalized it yet. And in that moment, I felt like I wasn't good enough to be in their presence, or really anyone's. I felt worthless, and I thought, yeah, I should just kill myself. Ran away from the party, ended up at a Dairy Queen, and lots of parents were out looking for me afterwards. And after my mom came to pick me up and I wasn't there, all the kids didn't tell everyone I ran away. They just waited until my mom came back for me. I was uh, behind a dumpster at Dairy Queen with my arms around my knees, just crying, weeping, and uh, taking off the cardboard and throwing it in the trash and I remember my knees were sticky, and I don't like sticky hands, I don't like sticky arms, I don't know why, but that's like one thing that annoys me. And I don't have many pet peeves, but just like sticky hands, I gotta wash them. <laughs> and uh, so, dirty hands I don't really care about, like dirt, like I love dirt in my hands, but yeah. like sticky for some reason. Yeah. Anyways, I, uh, I was just sticky all over, um, from the residue of the duct tape, on my shirt, my jeans, my arms. And um, Did you not like sticky before, or is now sticky a thing since that incident? I think it started then, maybe. Oh, I really do. Wow, I never made that connection. Fascinating. Yeah, I think that's why. That would be sensible. Yeah, wow. You might you. have some work to do with stickiness. Yeah, get comfortable being sticky. Get comfortable being sticky, man. Yeah, well, that's jujitsu. Jujitsu, <laughs> yeah. be, be uncomfortable. Be, become comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Just embrace it, or the cold, right? Yeah. And, um, or the sauna. But yeah, wow, I got some work to do. And uh, help me, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, man. Thank really. you. You're helping me. And brother, it, it, it was crazy. They came out, went to throw away the trash at closing time, and they saw me there or heard me because they were crying and invited me in. Oh, honey, come inside. Where's your mom? And uh, told them a little bit of what happened, but it was a shame. My parents didn't know how bad I was being bullied until then. They knew it had happened. I told them one other instance, but no kid wants to be known as the bullied kid, even by their parents, even with the best mom ever at least me, I would keep those things back. I've, I've become a lot more open this last 10 years doing a lot of deep work on healing and internal stuff. But my outlet became fighting. My outlet became wrestling. It was just a few weeks after that, like maybe a month. I went to a flea market in Dallas-Fort Worth and I'm sure they sell like stolen radios and stolen stuff there. But it was, uh, it was big. It was called Trader's Village. And I was going to buy a BB gun, and instead I came across a used VHS tape store, and I found UFC 2 through 9 or 2 through 11 or something like that. And Yeah, I, I fell in love with the sport, but first I knew that if I could, I've never made this connection or anything, but if I could transform into one of those guys, um, a professional fighter, I wouldn't be bullied. And so I wanted to do it from that moment. Not even watching a fight yet, just seeing them on the cover. 
I wanted to do that. And then when I watched it the first time, I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then I loved the chess match. And then uh, a funny story, I, I would hide the tapes. Grew up with pretty conservative parents. Very open-minded, but, but conservative in, in many ways. And um, like probably not wanting a kid to watch MMA fighting when it was being advertised as human cockfighting and banned on pay-per-view. And uh, porn was legal, but UFC was illegal. Something like 33%, 35% of the downloads on the internet are porn? No. That's wild. We're downloading some porn, man. Wow. Yeah, we're getting yeah. after it. So so, <laughs> so my dad thought... We're going hard in the pain. <laughs> going hard in the pain. That's, full court press. Yeah, full court press. <laughs> my dad thought when he found my VHS tapes hidden under my bed, because I watch at night or when they were at work. And anyways, he found it one time because I was watching it and he, he woke up and... You know the TVs whenever you used to turn them off? Sorry, kids. Um, you, you might not know this, but when you used to turn off TVs with like a VHS tape in it, the screen doesn't turn black right away, right? It turns kind of like dark gray or something, and mm-hmm. the, the TV's still settling. And yeah. So he comes in, I turn off the TV real quick, but it wasn't fast enough. He knew something was in there, and the v- VHS tape's still like moving in there to turn off. So he pulls it out, and he finds UFC there, and then he looks under my bed, finds a stack of UFC tapes, but he thought it was porn at first, <laughs> thinking it was just a stack of porn. Anyways, he told my mom I was going to be a fighter one day. My mom goes, no, he's never going to do that. Like a year later, I'm asking if I can box. She says, no. I asked if I could do some other stuff. And then I found a school that had wrestling. Texas didn't have it at that time, really. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I found a school with two Olympic gold medalists as high school coaches and started wrestling. And she didn't want me getting hit in the head a lot. So I did that. And man, it just changed my life. It gave me purpose. It gave me an outlet. It gave me goals. It gave me community. It gave me tribe. It gave me a team. And uh, mentors, encouragement from like parents, teammates, friends, people that came to watch. Um, And all of a sudden I went from literally being the most bullied kid at school to then my junior and senior year, you know, when I transferred schools, I was on homecoming court and nominated for prom king and different stuff like that because all of a sudden I was state champion wrestler, national champion wrestler. So it was a pretty remarkable transformation uh, from the bully kid that was quiet, that had a speech impediment from kindergarten to sixth grade, speech therapist. I I think in many ways wrestling saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe you could even say that those turds that were bullying you formed your life. Like they were like, like call them up and and say thank you. Yeah. You know what? I, I could do that now. I couldn't do it when I saw them about 10 years later at 21. And you could say, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, you know, not for anything that you did, but for their experience. Right. Wow. Uh, and this isn't to talk down about anybody, but I saw them at 21 at a sushi restaurant. They were doing something special for one of their birthdays, and it was a lot of the same kids that were at that party. And uh, I just got off the Ultimate Fighter TV show, and I go there with my girlfriend, and we're just going to get some sushi real quick. And it's like a table, like eight of them. It's probably like 20, 30 kids at the, I don't know how many at the party, but anyways, the main ones were there and they pulled me over to the table and I didn't want to go, but she came and like, you know, if we knew you were going to be who you were going to be, you were going to be a professional fighter. We would have never done that to you. You know, if we knew you could kick our ass, we wouldn't have bullied you like that. 
And I'm just like, wow. They've really evolved. Yeah, right? That's what I was thinking. I literally went to the bathroom. I go, excuse me, I go to the bathroom. And she goes, uh, I'll go with you. And so my girlfriend came and uh, I go, we're getting out of here. I can't handle it. I, at that time, I hadn't told even her that story. It was like a deep wound of mine. And um, she's like, why? Those are some of the friends you went to school with, all this stuff. I go, they're not my friends. Mm. If you knew how they treated me, you would say something to them. I want to do something to them at that time, you know. But yeah, now I'm in a much better place. What's your relationship to that boy that was bullied now? Mine with, with myself at that age? Yeah, Justin, yeah. Oh, man. I, I, uh, I've been doing it recently, but um, yeah, I tell myself that, you know, and I know this sounds it's cliche get, or goofy or, yeah. yeah I'm about to get a little she, fruity here on the live podcast, there we guys. Go. Get ready. Yeah. Hey, well, you're a handsome man. It's <laughs> like, pulling it out of me. I'm handsome and Justin can kill all of you, so that's <laughs> yeah. how we can go uh, fruity. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I, I tell myself sometimes in the mirror, my partner now like says, you need to tell yourself that you love yourself. That's been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life is come to self-love. I even got pretty gifted um, through a nonprofit and through compassion for others. Yeah, that, that thing I could thank them for is like, thank you for putting something in me that rose up, that would rise up and say, this isn't okay to happen to others. Yeah, man. I still have a hard time defending myself, but I defend others quickly because I know what it feels like. But I try to tell myself looking in the mirror, like, you know what, I love you. And she's like, no, say your name. And so I'm like, I love you, Justin. She say your full name. I'm like, okay, I love you, Justin Christopher Wren. And then I try to tell myself three things. Or I am compassionate, I am ambitious, and I am resilient. And so I lead with compassion. Love's at the tip of my spear. I'm ambitious. I have big dreams and goals for myself and others. But I'm also resilient. And uh, I think with resilience, you know, if love's at the tip of my spear, it would probably be compassion or understanding or empathy that is my shield mm. yeah it's a empathy understanding and even even truth like this is what they're saying out of their pain out of their hurt this is what they're doing but my truth is i'm not that guy that has to say to myself because i took that on as self-talk as my own self-worth is whenever i'd fuck up i would say you know you're worthless i mean own self-talk you're not good enough Maybe you should kill yourself. And uh, I contemplated it. Um, I mean, I know this sounds a little cheesy, but I just realized it after I did Joe Rogan's podcast less than a week ago that afterwards I was like, you know what? I'm a, I never thought of this, but I mean, my mom basically survived or, or he got healed from or just whatever from MS twice. And I know some cancer survivors. I'm like, I'm a two time suicide survivor, which is pretty crazy to think about. Like I, I, I'm very thankful. I guess I it wasn't successful, but this last time, like doctors say, like I a hundred percent took a heart stopping cocktail. I shouldn't be here. Anyways, so 2020 went from being the worst six months of my life to the first six months to being the best six months of my life at the end. And I think it was because I rediscovered who I was. I would say I had a spiritual rebirth, for sure. And I found tribe. You know, I, I found my second family in the forest with the pygmies at 23 years old. And then I got sick a lot. You know, I've been going there off and on the last 10 years. But, you know, I almost lost my life to some sicknesses. So now I try to be smart. I try to go less often than, you know, living in the rainforest for a full year at a time, close to two years now in total. And like sleeping on the dirt 
as my bed and around a fire as a blanket. You know, I love that. I come alive in the forest. I feel so in tune or grounded and just deep, meaningful relationships with others, but even nature. And I love it. And came back here and was battling sickness, went through a divorce, went through all this stuff. And I think it's so easy in our culture to isolate ourselves. You know, we have these big structures and houses and TVs and screens of like entertainment, but really it's a lot of it can be just numbing, sedating, suppressing. And the further up you get the hierarchy, the more you're winning the game, the more you distance yourselves from, from the tribe. Oh man, in that that saying, right? Um, if you get wealthier, whatever it is, don't build a bigger wall or a higher wall, build a longer table. Mm, right? I'm with that. That's not our culture. Our culture is build a higher wall, a compound. Don't extend your table. Yeah. Maybe even shorten it because you can't trust anybody. You can't trust Everyone you. just wants something from you. Yeah. I feel like wealth is like manure. <laughs> and, uh, and if you just have it in one pile, like it's going to start to stink. But if you spread it out, and whether that's in investments or whether that's with people or things you trust or things you're passionate about, give a little here, you give a little there. That's, that's whenever good. stuff starts happening. You know, Damn. trees start growing, fruit starts producing. Is whenever you you share it, whenever you give. Like it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. Even in fighting, you want to give it more than you receive it. But in life, I wonder. So we were talking about. Suicide and, and generally the relationship that Western culture has with death, there's like an obligatory sadness mm-hmm. that we've been indoctrinated with. Not right. to say that death is or is not sad, but right. that's you know you wear black and you hunch over and you mourn and you carry the thing and it's this is sad. Like that's the that's mm-hmm. the story. And you could maybe go to another culture where maybe it's like oh they graduated, yeah, they passed this bardo. It's like they got jumped from third grade to freshman year. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like cool. Like he's super smart. He didn't need to be here, right? You know, so we could run that story as well and be like, okay, perfect. You know, there's a lot of different operating systems that we could run on a relationship right. with with life and death. Yeah. And so someone brought up that to be willing to end one's life, which I'm I'm like kind of treading on thin ice with this, and I'm and no, I'm you're good. tempted to not in relation to you, just in general, right? Just to to like re speak it. But they said, and I found it interesting that to be willing to end one's life is actually quite courageous mm. because most people would be too scared. Yeah. And it was an interesting thing to be at that point and actually be, have the follow through and be willing to make that step. That's something that I, you know, I don't know anything about. I don't, it's like it's it's uncharted territory for a lot of people. Right. It is, but sadly, it's becoming more and more common. There was an article in CNN. And I'm not saying that it is courageous. She no, no, just no, had no, an interesting no, I, I got, idea. I got something on that. Yeah, and I was just I'll like, huh. it was like a head scratcher for me. of like, okay, I can, I'm going to stew on this. Yeah, I'll get to that. But in Japan, I don't know if it was December or November, but CNN said that more Japanese took their lives in COVID. one month uh, than all of COVID in 2020. Yeah, man. So in some ways, I think it is courageous, but in other ways, I think it can be quite cowardly too, because I tried twice. But like with my friend Brian and my friend Marquise, I shared the eulogy at my friend Brian Sykes' funeral, and I would never call that man a coward. He was one of the best men I've ever known. You know, he left behind four boys and a mom, Gina, and uh, even during COVID and COVID-cautious people will will definitely dislike me saying this, but people were so moved by who he was 
because he was a coach of coaches. He was the guy that took the Little League Pee team always to the Super Bowl, and he was the best coach that there's ever been in Pee football. But he was also a football player at Iowa State University. He had concussions in middle school, concussions in high school, concussions in college. He started fighting. He was my training partner. I was his coach in his MMA fights. He got knocked out too many times. Great grappler. But uh, he had CTE, and uh, his death certificate says uh, he died due to complications of CTE. And now, even in his death, because he wasn't himself, um, he was forgetting stuff. He would have fits of anger that wasn't him. He was a teddy bear. He was the guy that going to you know, the ski hill in uh, Copper, uh, Colorado, or Summit County, you know, he would stop, and, or he'd recognize someone's need, a homeless person's need. He'd stop at McDonald's, he'd get them food because he didn't give them money, he'd give them food. And his kids or people would be like, you know what, we, we got to get there, Dad. What are you doing? Why are we stopping? We already ate breakfast. And, you know, he'd stop by and give the homeless person food, and that person would light up like, oh, my gosh, I was so hungry. You know, he was so sensitive. He could recognize someone's need. And doctors scientist, tech guys, because he was one of the most brilliant guys in the world. He was my first sponsor because if he saw something that wasn't right or that he could make better, he would do it. Mm. He did it with his own shampoo. He did it with his own soap. Uh, he did it with uh, his own, it was called Cardio Force. It's still online. And we're trying to see if we could start that back up and do it well. When all the grapplers would use NO Explode, I don't know if you remember that, sure, where of course. it would just pump your muscles up. Grapplers can't use that because if you start trying to choke someone, your forearms fill up and your grip disappears and you can't grapple for more than a few minutes. So we developed a better product. He's very in line with like kind of the on it style or just the wellness movement that's happening now, but he was ahead of his time. Anyways, we're trying to see if we can, if I can help uh, bring that back and it be a support for the family and even um, uh, give to CTE, like a CTE charity or something. Even his death, he's helping people because his brain, he decided to donate to this place in Boston that's the best CTE research center in the world. So in many ways, he was courageous in an act of that. But I, I guess I would say it for myself. And you know, we went to Brendan Shep's comedy show last night with Aubrey Marcus and my friend Brigham. And I told you guys right before I came that I found out that my friend took his life and I got to leave for his funeral and be there for his family. His parents were like my second parents for the last like eight or nine years. They've been my rock. They're the rock of my foundation, my nonprofit. They run it for me. I'm the founder and president, but they're they're the operations manager and the executive director. And um, suicide's really hard for people to understand. For me, you know, I'm never going to make that decision. I've decided now. I'm here to stay. But because when I woke up on April 6, 2020, it was like, I had this sense of knowing in my spirit that you're not done yet. But um, for Marquise, he was waiting for a fourth transplant, a fourth kidney transplant, a fourth kidney transplant, and he was suffering. So I guess for me, how I, would, how I try to explain it is when I saw the Twin Towers get hit in the ninth grade, I remember someone jumped out of the building, and they were above where the plane made impact, right? And so the jet fuel's in there, the fire's in there. The smoke is smoldering up to them and they're suffocating. They probably maybe ran by the elevator, knew they couldn't use that. Maybe they looked for the staircase and they opened it up and it's all smoke and fire. And then they find a window. And it's not a good option, but it 
at that moment probably seemed like the better option. And I'm just glad that I made it through it to realize that the best option for me is to be here and to not not leave a legacy of hurt for the people that loved me, cared about me, um, to not choose that destiny um, because you don't know what beautiful things can happen. I think of my friend Nick Santanastasso. He was supposed to be aborted because they thought he was going to be born with his organs outside his body. Now he's one of the main speakers for Tony Robbins and he's workout buddies with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He's, yeah. he's living the life. He's got a beautiful girlfriend. He, him and I have traveled together. We love each other. And uh, But when I think about that, like all the challenges he had to overcome, yeah. bullying, thoughts of killing himself, but not knowing how he could do it because he just got one arm and one finger, no legs and missing an arm. And, uh, you know, he turned that around to be one of the most inspirational guys in the world. Like first he made, made it famous on Vine because he would dress up like a zombie and, uh, and, and go into grocery stores and then he would like just chase someone with, with uh, I've never shared that story, but he would just freak people out because all of a sudden here's a guy with no legs and missing an arm and yeah. he's got like things and blood all over him, like chasing these people. And, but he like learned how to use comedy as a way to deal with grief and loss or just who he was. And um, then after that, he became super inspirational. It's like, we can, we can turn our darkest times into someone else's brightest moments. With every lesson comes, I think, a blessing. And uh, so what, what are we going to learn from me when I attempted suicide in Playa del Carmen in Mexico, April 5th? That was my darkest night of the soul, um, April 4th and 5th. I actually did it in the daytime, around noon or 2 p.m. I took five Oxy-80s, which are the strongest milligrams there are. Most of the time they give people five milligrams or 10 milligrams. Five 80s is equivalent to 85s, I think. So almost three prescription bottles of the five milligrams. Wow. And um, then I took five Xanax, two milligrams, which I think are the strongest on the market. Those like bars or barbiturates. And um, drank like half or three quarters of a bottle of tequila. And I snorted the biggest, almost like a Sharpie size line of cocaine. Wow. Yeah. But I crushed up this crystal that I thought was Molly or MDMA. And it was like the last thing I could physically do before all my motor skills were slowing. If I would have tried to talk, it would, there would have been nothing that nothing that you could have heard. And everything was getting dark. Everything was getting cold. Everything was getting quiet. And something in me, God, source, creator, my intuition that said, crush up that crystal and snort it. And so I did. After having cocaine, which numbs your nose, I all of a sudden have the worst chemical burn feeling I've ever felt in my life in my nostrils. And I did on both sides, just took the whole crystal. And I was okay with death. I flew down to Mexico to die. It was two pilots, four flight attendants, and me. COVID had shut all the flights down. and This might have been one of the last flights out. And um, for some reason, they took the flight. And I thought it was very like symbolic. I didn't want to take a lot of people on the journey with me. And I didn't want my family to find me. So, anyways, I crushed up that crystal, and the last thing I remember is falling back, and uh, my legs were on the side of the bed to where my feet were almost on the ground, and my back laid back, and I was in my clothes, and I just passed out. It was like this hum. I can't really explain it, but it was like just buzz. It was in my ears, and I knew I was dying. I knew I was dead or going to die. Then I woke up the next morning at 6 a.m., so this is like noon or 2 p.m., and I wake up the next morning to this gasp, like, <gasps> you know, and I, I f instantly thought, like, fuck, I'm alive. Shit, I'm still here. 
because it wasn't like a half-assed attempt. This was like for real. And um, I get up and my heart's beating like crazy. Feels like it's gonna beat out of my chest. Have a headache. But something in me just said, get in the water. I was on the beach, and so, I mean, you could throw a rock and hit the ocean water and toss a rock. You know, it was so, so close. And put my feet right in the sand and took off my shirt and just walked right into the water. And I was sitting there, and the sun hadn't risen yet, and I'm letting the water come over me. I feel so much shame, such an incredible amount of shame. Mm. And I, it's like every wave that came over me was shame. More shame, more shame, more shame. But then as I thought, you know, I'm thankful for this beating crazy fast, beating heart in my chest. One of the things the pygmies would pray, they've experienced a lot of loss, but they would thank God every day that they're alive. You know, thank you that I get to live today because um, many won't wake up and uh, or we've lost many people. So in that moment, like I'd said that prayer maybe before and I wasn't much of a praying guy, but I was like, wow, thank you for this beating heart in my chest. And I just remember breathing and I said, thank you for the breath that's in my lungs. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, it felt like it, it switched from like this shamefulness washing over me to like it was like gratefulness that just whoosh came right over me. And like shamefulness kind of left. You know how like waves come over you and then they kind of go back out mm. and come back over you? It's almost like more gratefulness was coming over me and a little bit more shame was leaving. And I just had my eyes closed and I felt this whisper in my spirit or soul that said, open your eyes. So I did. And right when I did, bro, right on the horizon, the sun appeared. Like it just popped up over the horizon and the sun started to rise. And that's when I felt, you're not done yet. This isn't your destiny. This isn't your legacy. And I watched creator or whatever you want to believe, like paint the most epic, beautiful, incredible, majestic sunrise I've ever seen in my life. It was a work of art. It was a masterpiece. And I remember crying, literally just sitting there crying in the water, watching this every color. I'm, I'm partially colorblind, but I saw more colors than I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and... um I was like, wow, this happens every day, twice a day. <laughs> like, I've never stopped to appreciate it like this. I mean, I've taken pictures and stuff and thought, oh, that's dope. But like to really think like, wow, I am so grateful for that. I remember thinking everything I could think of to be grateful for. I'm thankful for the warmth that comes from that. I'm thankful for these cool healing waters. I'm thankful for... Those clouds, you know, none of them are the same. And I'm thankful for these colors. And I'm thankful for that bird flying by. And I'm thankful for, you know, having the privileged life that I've had because I live in the West. I live in America. And if you live in America, you're pretty damn rich most of the time. Even our people in Austin that are living in the homeless, you know, community under the bridges, like they have clean water to drink. They probably got a coat and stuff like that. The pygmy people that I lived with, I never met one that owned a blanket. The fire is their blanket, for real. And they only eat what they get for the day, you know, um, whether it's hunting, gathering, or being enslaved. And I've been to funerals of kids under the age of five, five of them. I helped dig their graves. And it's just like, I don't know how I saw that, experienced that, saw 73 water wells be drilled over 60,000 people get clean water. 
1,651 people transition out of actual slavery and into freedom, 3,000 acres of land given back. And then I was just thinking, I'm like, how was I so selfish or how was I so confused or how was I so dark that I literally stopped counting my blessings, that I literally somehow became ungrateful, that I literally somehow thought the best solution or answer was to take my own life whenever the poorest people in the world that I know and anthropologists call the most oppressed people, like they have some of the happiest times. Wealth is only one bank account. You know, there's all these other accounts too. Friendships, health, movement, nutrition, food. Like we can be rich in so many different ways. It doesn't just have to be finances. And oftentimes they have more wealth than we do here because they have each other. And they have deep relationships with each other with nature, with God, with everyone around them, they support each other. They don't turn their backs on them. They don't neglect them. They don't reject them. They, they, they truly are like with each other. One take a quick moment from a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Drink Element. If you'd like to get a free sampler pack from Element, you can go to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com slash align. We are also brought to you by BioOptimizers. For 10% off of your purchase from BioOptimizers, you can go to biooptimizers.com slash align podcast. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash align podcast. So what the heck is Element and why does it matter? Why is it relevant to this podcast? All water is not created equal and the way that you are able to assimilate water is actually a product of the minerals that are within the water. So a lot of the water that we're drinking, especially drinking distilled water, purified water, things of the sort, they will lack some of the vital minerals that will allow that H2O to permeate your cells. So what the founder and my friend, Rob Wolf, New York Times bestselling author, badass of jujitsu and weightlifting and father and all things, he put together a really tasty, delicious way for us to be able to assimilate our water more effectively and also get all the electrolytes that we need for proper energy throughout the day. So it's got sodium, it's got magnesium, it's got all the things that you need for your water to be optimized, you could say. And uh, it comes in these delicious flavored packets that are fantastic for travel, fantastic for throwing into your gym bag, and it makes water delicious. So I highly recommend checking them out. If you are interested in enhancing your water experience, you can get yourself a free sample pack from LMNT by going to drinklmnt.com slash align. That's drinklmnt.com slash align. We're also brought to you by BioOptimizers. So why would I work with BioOptimizers? One, I trust their products emphatically. I trust the ingredients and the sourcing they put into them, and they've been my go-to source for probiotics for that very reason. Presently, what I'd like to talk to you about is the value of cultivating your microbiome within your guts. So your microbiome is responsible for a large part of your immune function, a large part of the production of neurochemistry within the rest of your body, your brain, etc. And if it is off, then you will feel off. It is the foundation for your health, your well-being, your mental, emotional health, all of the things that are all tied together. And they put together a fantastic product referred to as the gut 
Guardian that has all the prebiotic stuff that you need, all the probiotic stuff that you need. It weeds out the bad things, the bad bugs, uh, in quotations, and integrates the good ones so that you can feel happier, healthier, stronger, and more robust from an immune perspective. If you're interested in boosting up your immune system, jump over to biooptimizers.com slash align. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash align for 10% off of your purchase. All right, back to the show. So you were a person that essentially, I would say that place that you were at, it's like you were touching a void in a sense. And that's it. There's even like a French term, I think, that's something along the lines of touching the void, which is a sensation that many people get, I get at least, if you are, you know, say, on a side of a bridge, the sensation of like, oh, what would it be like to jump? Mm-hmm. You know, or you drive it along a road and be like, what would it be just to huck this thing off of here? Wow. You ever get that kind of sensation? Yeah. 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 You know, not with any kind of like, you know, oh, I'm going to do this, but it's like, what would that be like? I think yeah. it's a very natural human thing. Right. You know, but the main question is, is coming two questions. I wonder what your thoughts are on Western culture's relationship to life. Because there's a lot of people living that it's like it doesn't really seem like much of a life. Mm. And it's just like, well, they're laying there, they're breathing, you know, we got all the things hooked up. Like there's still technically consciousness is in the body, mm. you know, we're we're winning. It's okay. You know, and maybe that's maybe that's right. Um, you know, but our relationship to life is interesting. And then I notice in myself, and you can, you know, obviously hear I'm like tiptoeing around, like, how much death can we talk about? Can I say the word suicide? You know, because I really want to understand like where you were at while you were in that touching yeah. the void place that very few people know about. Mm. You know, so it's like, can I ask where sure. your mind was at in that moment of I'm 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 out of here? Yeah, I felt like a failure, and I was in that thought loop that became my own self talk. You're not good enough. You're worthless. You should kill yourself. Huh. The reason I was sucked down into that was I got a divorce. And for me, growing up, I wanted to be pretty much the only one in my family to not get a divorce because I saw a lot of pain and destruction and hurt feelings and people, you know, growing up with parents that just talk shit about the other parent and um, just saw a lot of toxic things. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to be different. I'm going to have a marriage and it's going to be a successful one. Well, it wasn't. And, um, pretty much all the blame for it. I mean, I just, I, I mean, I know it's two and, and we decided together that we'd be healthier, not together. And it was actually the silver lining was it was such a kind, that's what our friends said, our family said, that was the kindest divorce, kindest, quickest. You guys supported each other. You helped each other. You went through counseling for a divorce. and But still, I had this feeling of such utter failure that I couldn't make it a success. Then when I relapsed, that's when everything went super dark. That was from the first suicide attempt too. Was I was stuck in addiction and couldn't escape, and almost that near life or near death experience kind of shook me up in a way. And the right people were in my life at the right time that got me help. And at thirty three, so that was at twenty through the first attempt and the second attempt. I've heard there's a sensation of of relief, almost like the day of the person would be happy, potentially. And because, and this is, I'm way out of my, because you've accepted, you're like, ah, I'm Mm. I'm free. That wasn't my case, my scenario. I felt that the day I was, had the shame, but then it became 
gratitude um, the day after. Yeah. The day before was the darkest mental place I'd ever been. There was um, no sensation of, of relief I'm about to let go dear, or, during, or feeling empowered. Dear, dear, I mean, during it, I knew I was in control. During it, I knew it was a conscious decision. During it, I knew this is my, this is my choice. This is the way I'm going out. But I think, like in a fight, I felt like I was in a. I've never been submitted in a fight, but I have in the training room, and you know, you tap and they let go. My addiction was like I was tapping and I was tapping and I was tapping and I was trying to get it to stop, but it just wouldn't. Even though I'm the one that has to consume the drug, right? But the addict mind, like you lose the power of control once that substance hits your body. Yeah. And an actual allergy goes off. An allergy is an abnormal reaction to a common substance, right? Some people can't have peanuts. I can't have drugs. At least oxy for sure. And even weed would lead me back to oxy. I, I saw it as a, a thing that would stop me from going to oxy. But now going through rehab, I'm like, oh shit, every time I ever had weed, I went back to oxy. Maybe it prolonged the process, delayed it for a bit, but it always ended up right back at it. Do you think it was you that was choosing to end your life? Or do you think there could be some consciousness of um, pharmaceutical oxy or some other? I mean, it's oh, a weird I think, question. I think I get, I, I definitely a hundred percent get more suicidal whenever I'm on oxy. Hmm. Like suicidal ideation isn't something that's in me when I'm not using. So I've never really made that correlation. But I do know that that addiction was going to kill me one way or into the other. And so I think the empowerment part would be that I wasn't going to die at an old age in a maybe a trailer park or something like that because I wasted all my money and I can only spend it on drugs. Mm. And I'm dying of an old age with a old liver that's all banged up and bruised and ready to quit. Like, I know I'm not going to escape this thing. I mean, it felt like I was in a stranglehold I couldn't stop. Like, I'm going to die from this one way or the other. Is it going to be now or later? So I think I just decided now. So I think there was some power control in that moment that I've never really talked about or dug up, but I just didn't want to die from it in a way where I had hurt more people than helped, meaning had, you know, in my first suicide attempt at 23, I missed my best friend's wedding. I was a missing person for for eight weeks, basically, and... uh yeah, I was supposed to be helping people train for world championship fights. I was supposed to be training for my own. It was a big fight, and uh, I got kicked off my fight team, and then I got a call that or it was a voicemail, and I was basically not functioning for eight weeks. I was in some drug house in Colorado and woke up with a guy giving me a bottle of water, and I just remember crushing it, saying, he was saying, Justin, you got to drink, you got to drink. And I look at this guy, and I have no clue who he is. I'm like, who are you? He goes, who am I? You've been eating my food, using my drugs, sleeping on my couch for two weeks. What do you mean, who am I? Wow. That was a wake-up call. And then I got the voicemail when I hitchhiked with a truck driver back to Denver. And, uh, I mean, that's a pretty low point. And, um, and on my voicemail, when my phone got charged, my best friend at the time, who's a great, great guy, he said, um, I can't believe you missed my wedding. I can't believe my best man didn't show up. In those moments, like I know that I'm a good friend. I am. Like that's who I am. I'm a good friend to people. But whenever addiction or even depression like seeps in, like I'm not who I'm supposed to be or I'm not who I can be. I'm not optimal and I'm not normal. I'm like, I'm like below average. 
I get that we're allowed to have these ebbs and flows, like like ups and downs, but I wouldn't handle those downs well. And so I think, uh, I don't know where I was going with that except for, uh, yeah, I mean, whenever I am in active addiction, and I don't know, I went to, I believe there's an addict brain and maybe once an addict, always an addict, but I'm also convinced that I'm not going to have to sit in defeat for the rest of my life with this thing that there are ways to overcome it and there are ways to live in freedom, to walk in freedom, to be around people that, you know, I have eight months sober, but was able to do a Buffalo Trace uh, whiskey tasting with Joe Rogan on a show last week. And that was pretty freeing. You know, I had the sample bottle sent to me. I sat down with him and drinking wasn't really necessarily my drug of choice, but to be able to be there and about to share all about my addiction and rehab for 90 days. But before we start, I'm, giving them a sample, pick your barrel, you know, we're going to auction it off. You're going to get some bottles in, we're going to auction this off and it's going to raise money for us. We've already raised over $50,000 and uh, I'm not going to neglect opportunities like those, turn them down whenever it can be used for good. If triggers are truly real, like that's a slippery slope. Like I just had two friends tragically lost because of suicide, things that I dealt with that I could have done, but I'm not going to let that turn me back to using because if I said that triggered me, then anything can be a trigger. Like I could, I could go to the gas station because they sell beer. That's a trigger. Or I'm at a party and they're serving wine. I'm at someone's wedding. I have to deny myself. I see a lot of people in some of these 12-step programs, which I think are fantastic. But also I see is some of them being disempowering where they can't go to a family Christmas or Thanksgiving because someone's going to be drinking there. And so they put their problem on somebody else. If that's true, you got to move up to like to Greenland and, and, and go to an ice cap. And then if a, an Eskimo drives by and you know he's got a bottle of whiskey, then it's his, his fault that he triggered you because an Eskimo had some whiskey or something. Like You just can always find someone else to blame yeah. or some situation. If you were with yourself the following day when you were looking at the sunrise, if that self could step back the day before and be with self that was crushing all the things up, what would you do? What would that self do? Maybe a weird question. No, it's not weird. The instant thing that came up, I, I thought wouldn't make sense, but I'll, I'll just I'll just shoot from the hip. Yeah, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> full, full there's a lot more options um, than that on that question. <laughs> yeah, I think I would say, I I honestly don't think I'd change a thing. Mm. I'd still do it and hope and pray that I still came out on the other side, mm. because now I have so much more of a deeper appreciation of life. There has not been one day since April 5th of 2020 that I didn't take the prayer that I see the pygmies say and lived with and saw them do it often, and I might have mumbled it, but now I mean it. Like it's in my core. It's deep within my being. It is stitched into my veins. It is weaved into me. It is etched in stone or in flesh. It's a tattoo. Honestly, this tattoo that you saw earlier, that's the water. That's me having that spiritual rebirth in the water. Oh, shit. And um, when I was in Sedona with Aubrey, we did breath work in Anahata. Is the name? Is that right? Anahata, yeah. We drew these oracle card things, and I've never seen those before. Oracle yeah. cards, tarot cards, I've never seen them. <laughs> and, uh, and I joined Fit for Service and didn't really know the super amazing tribe that I was stepping into. And, you know, I draw a card, and they said, set an intention, and write a word down. Well, I wrote down love. 
you know, <laughs> write down something you want to feel or intention. And I said loved with a D on it. Mm. I want to feel loved. Yeah, I've written that one. Um, yeah. And I draw this card and it just so happened to be the only one in the deck that was called the goddess of water. And uh, water's been the gift that I've tried to give to people that need it the most. And uh, it was super touching me. For some reason, I kind of got emotional when I got that card. I'm like, what, what the hell am I doing? Why am I getting emotional at a, a card that just says goddess of water? And um, Being a pansy. Yeah, I know, right? Like, getting a little fruity. <laughs> a little fruity. <laughs> and, and I... Uh, I sit there and we lay back and we do this breath work and I've done some yoga breathing and Wim Hof breathing, but not for three hours. Yeah. I mean, they start with a 30-minute kind of intro and a 30-minute kind of whatever integration. So I guess there's only two hours of breathing. But two hours of breathing is a lot of, a lot of breathing, even oh, though we yeah. do it all the time. But, uh, you know, it was intentional. It was incredible. It was the sun, beautiful on Bear Mountain there, uh, the back of Aubrey's land. And Aubrey came down and he put his hand on my chest and he said what is this armor over your heart can you let it drop can you let yourself be fully seen and known mm-hmm. i was like wow you know i feel like i'm pretty open and transparent at least now lately but in that moment i was like wow and just kind of visualizing my heart and seeing armor drop into the dirt when he said that i was like Oof, okay i'll go with that we start breathing for like 30 minutes more or something like that music's going and it's guided and all of a sudden, I start having a vision. And at the Olympic Training Center, we'd go through visualization drills. And we'd see the match in our mind 100 times before we go out and do it. Oftentimes, it's best-case scenario. Sometimes, it's worst-case scenario. But this wasn't anything I tried to conjure up. I had experimented with psychedelics before. This was not like that. This was so vivid, so real, so apparent. It was like a movie in my mind. Mm-hmm. And I saw the ocean forming. I saw these storm clouds and the ocean was there and I, I saw a heart, an anatomically correct human heart of flesh in the top of the water. It's these dark storm clouds and dark water and the heart starts to sink. And it starts to sink in the ocean and I instantly just know like that's, that's where I was on April 5th. Like that sinking heart, that darkened, desperate, dying, drowning heart. And it's sinking to the ocean floor. And right before it hit, it's kind of crazy. One of the facilitators come by and they spritz this water on me. When they spritz that water and the vision, the heart's almost about to hit the ocean floor. And all of a sudden at the top of the ocean, it's uh, top of the water, it's like a, it's like this golden, gorgeous swirl of like this water that's like diving. It's like on a mission. And it's coming right down towards my heart. And right before it hits the ocean floor, this thing swoops it up, swirls around it, and starts to swim back up to the surface of the water. It breaks the water. It's about two or three feet above the water. And this golden, gorgeous, healing water is circling and swirling around my heart. And all of a sudden, it switches and it turns into this flame, and I know it's this healing water and there's this flame of love, and then it turns into this white orb, just this gorgeous, white, bright light, and then it switches again, and it turns into this almost like goldsmithing or jewelry making gold, like liquid gold over this heart, and it starts to solidify. And 
I raised my hands and I don't know why I did that, but I raised my hands up on my back and one of the facilitators comes and they grab my wrist and they pull my wrist above my head, kind of like you were doing when you were working on me. <laughs> and uh, when they bring that back, it feels like something was placed, like an actual medicine ball was placed in my hands. Like this ball of energy or this ball of weight that was placed in my hands. I thought they did, but my eyes are closed and I pull my hands back up because of the weight, I pull my hands back up above my head. Well, I'm there and I try to push with my right hand to the left and my left hand goes out to the left. Mm. Like something's actually there. Mm. And I push with my left hand to the right and my right hand goes out to the right. I'm like, what is this? One of the other facilitators, maybe the same person, sees me looking weird and pushing my hands around and they come and they grab the tops of my hands and they put my hands over each other. And it was like these facilitators like knew what was happening because it was so in line with my, my vision that this heart is starting to solidify into gold. And they take my hands and they start putting it down right on top of my heart. And when that happened, man, it felt like warm honey, this love, this, this sticky, <laughs> this stickiness was in my chest and my heart. And it wasn't a bad sticky. Yeah. It was, uh, it was healing. It was soothing. And, um, and I just knew in that moment I started to cry, like uh, like tears just kind of fell down the side of my face, and still on my back, still trying to breathe. Oh, and I even forgot that as that heart was sinking, I literally felt like a, a, a tightening in my chest, like almost like a compression, like if you're diving. And then whenever it started swimming back up, it like lifted. I mean, it was just it was just so crazy that this just happened in my psyche or in my mind or in my soul. And man, whenever that happened, I was just like, I remember I went up to talk to Aubrey and Vailana afterwards and I told them, told them about the suicide attempt, told them about the vision, told them about the rebirth that I had in the waters down there. That day I decided to get this tattoo on the side of my leg and um, that represents that April 6th moment. And uh, I mean, I was like tearing up with Aubrey telling him, he just gave me the biggest hug and I was like, man, I'm here to stay. I'm here to stay, and like I gotta love myself. I've been good at loving people. Sure, I've been terrible at loving myself. And, yeah, you uh, seem like you really crushed the loving people game. Hey, thanks. <laughs> I want, I want to. No, I appreciate that. Like it's, it's hard to accept that sometimes, but I've started realizing like I've always loved people better than I love myself. Why do you think that is? Why would so it be easy, easy to love people though? You're very effective with loving people. Yeah, I don't think I was until after I broke free of the addiction. I think I was good at cutting up and joking and making people laugh sometimes Yeah, because that was my way to try to make friends. So I went from being laughed at to then ninth and 10th grade, I went to a school. They transferred me after eighth grade after that bullying moment to a new school. And I tried to become the class clown. Well, that backfired. I actually got bullied some more there too. But I stood up to the bullies and they were bullying a kid with special needs and Ended up hitting the guy and breaking his sternum. And I think that's really the first time I ever really hit somebody. Mm. But I think it was all that rage, all that built up, pent up anger. And I guess I was destined to be a pro fighter. Yeah. I remember I wanted to hit him in the face, but I didn't want it, the teachers to see stuff like that. They're bullying a kid right by the urinal. And he was like literally crouched down. They're slapping him in the back, backhanding him in the forehead, saying, Damn. You're so stupid. You're so stupid. I just raged. I threw a big punch, thought I was going to hit him in the face but re-aimed at the chest and a, you know an ambulance came for him and police came for me and so I think once I found fighting and wrestling I started encouraging people I think I'm a natural encourager 
I'm definitely on that five love language thing. Like first thing is words of affirmation. Second thing is physical touch. Mm. The fit for service tribe has nicknamed me the uh, hug shaman. Kind of okay. like a Kyle Kyle Kingsbury type. Like you're very yeah, you're come, very come get a I big get, hug. I get that from you. Yeah, you exude an immense amount of love and authenticity and wow. kindness and like that's what I get from you. Thanks, bro. Mm. I heard this quote that actually kind of led me to the Congo, but it started at a children's hospital. Uh, I was kicked off my fight team because of my addiction, and they wanted me to go get help. Kind of neglected that, but I got my act together for a little bit, and I started working at a children's hospital, and that changed my perspective. You know, wheeling around kids, yeah. you know, wheelchair because they have cancer, you know, five years old, 10 years old. And then nine months later, like my fight team's coming back in, and they're, taking a tour of the children's hospital, visiting the kids with their UFC belts, champions, you know. And they're like, wow, Justin, we want, we want you back on the team. Like, you've gotten your stuff back together, you know. I knew I wasn't ready. But then I went to the Congo, then I ended up staying, then I kept going back, and it took me a while to come back to fighting. But anyways, this quote was on kindness, was no act of kindness, no matter how small, ever goes wasted. And I just thought... Yeah, something resonated in me. Even if people are unkind to me, I want to be kind back. And I think I need the inverse cr- is true with anti-kindness. Mm. Not that it's wasted, but it, I don't think it just stops. Mm. You know, it's like the, the that slow, steady aggregation of every one of your actions. They all get filed away. Mm. You know, the body keeps the score. Mm. The zeitgeist keeps the score. Wow, everything matters. Yeah, and maybe nothing at all. <laughs> It's crazy to think about. <laughs> Everything matters, but time doesn't exist. Nothing matters. <laughs> oh, I love it. But I, I, I think I think at the end of the day, I used to think the scariest thing for me to go to bed at night when I'm older would be we're on my deathbed, knowing that I woulda, coulda, or shoulda done more, like good. That it would have helped more people. I mean, I think someone said once, like, there's going to be these ghosts at the end of your life that that can haunt you by, you know, the ideas that only you could have brought to life or the people that you could have only helped and mm. things like that. And it, it really resonated with me where I was like, oof, yeah. And so I think that I don't want people to hurt like I hurt. That I want them to know they have a lot of worth. That every one of us is valuable. We're needed. And so if there is someone that's listening to this that might think, like I also think in some senses with with Brian and Marquise that in some ways it was brave. But at the same time... I by no means was trying to glorify her. No, 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 I know know that. I know that, I understand. But I do want to say that like you never know what's right around the corner. Like the good things that could happen. Like literally went from the worst six months of my life to the best, most fulfilling, most rewarding, most love-filled, passionate, purposeful yeah. six months of my life right after that. It's almost likely, at least if it's like anything like the stock market or the housing market or yeah. markets in general, wow. the happiness market. Yeah, happiness market. Yeah. I like that. If you're in a dump, like there's a good chance it's a great time to invest. Right. You know, like a wow. Things are about as low as they've ever been in history. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Quadruple down. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. I, I chose to go to a rehab that wasn't a fun one or a nice one or a posh one. It was, you know, I could have gone to Passages in Malibu or Betty Ford in LA or, or Scottsdale, the Meadows, which those can be great places. 
Maybe they work for some people. But I knew I was in the biggest fight for my life. Yeah. Biggest fight of my life. And that I needed real training, real coaching, and I needed no bullshit. I didn't need to necessarily wake up with green smoothies and massages and like, which are cool. I mean, we need to take care of ourselves. Yeah, that's a part of it. Addicts, addicts don't take care of themselves a lot. But I kind of had that. I know how to take care of myself. I'm a pro athlete. It's just when I get into the act of addiction, it's like I basically chose to kind of go to a militaristic boot camp style, like twelve step completion program where they kicked out more people than they kept. And uh, I was one of two guys that made it ninety days while I was there. Wow. And uh, their their whole goal and intention was to break me. Mm. And I almost left three times, like seriously, almost left. My mom was coming to get me one of the times, and uh, I decided to have her turn around and let me stay. And uh, uh, that was when I tore my calf. You worked on tore my calf playing wiffle ball at rehab, <laughs> and, and uh, it ripped up the back of my leg. The nurse didn't want to help me. They weren't going to give me any pain meds. I needed to go to the ER. They finally took me to the ER. They wouldn't let me get an MRI. They wouldn't let me talk to a doctor. They said, you got to choose what's more important to you, your leg or your life. And I go, well, why does it have to be one or the other? Like, can't I go get treatment on my leg, which is my livelihood since I'm a professional athlete, and then come back? Like, well, let me go for an hour to get an MRI and come back. And it took them nine days to let me do that, 13 days to talk to a surgeon. And then they're like, well, you know. And anyways, I tried to rehab with nobody's help inside rehab for 90 days or about 80 days because I tore it about 10 days in. I'm going to bed with with uh, Tylenol and ibuprofen. I got to alternate Tylenol and ibuprofen. at three inches torn off the wow. tendon. That's all I got. That's it. If I wanted ice, I had to go up the second floor and make my own bag of ice on crutches. Damn. I had to carry my bag myself. I had to make my plate myself and carry it to the table. I was having to learn how to swing a crutch with one arm in my armpit, like pinching it with my armpit and swinging it out and carrying a cup and plate. Anyways, I don't mean to get sympathy, but they were so fucking hard on me, man. And in many ways, I resented them. But in other ways, I realized, like, if I can learn to get through this, there's a Swahili proverb. And the Swahili proverb says, if there is no enemy within the opponent on the outside can do us no harm. And I remember the third time I was about to leave because I was like, this is medically needing to be looked at and like it's my finances, it's my job, it's my, you know, and they're just like, hey, basically, if you want to be a pussy, which one of them guys did call me that, they would say, you fake as fuck, motherfucker, you mask wearing clown, you Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. It was so many of the guys. Yeah, bro, it was, it was wild. But I decided to stay because I knew that right on the other side of it was going to be something good. I was actually going to be free. Actually going to be free. If there's no enemy within, the opponent on the outside can do us no harm. What do you think it is with, like I've heard some people, if you're a person that's going through a lot of trials and tribulations, it's because God, universe, consciousness, whatever your belief system is, felt as though you were able to carry that weight. And it's like, I wonder why some people seem to, and this is another like big question that I you know, don't expect any kind of you know go anywhere you'd like. Have you ever thought of like why it is that so much weight has been placed on your bar in this life? It seems like you've had a lot of incidences that are like very challenging, and we didn't get into you know a fraction of the stories that I've heard. And you've also had a really illustrious, beautiful, amazing, gifted, blessed life. Yeah. Like, why do you think your life is so robust? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's a funny way to put it. Great way to put it. I, uh, I don't know, man. I, uh, but I'm thankful for it. 
I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for the challenges because in my experience, nothing truly worthwhile, or the, maybe not truly, because there's been a lot of things that just happened that are great. But the ones I worked for or worked through to get to, those ended up being the most meaningful, the most worthwhile. The things that had the challenges, like as a fighter, like it's awesome to have the highlight real knockout where you come out, you don't get touched, and you knock them out. The fans love that. So like, that dude's a badass. That guy didn't even touch him. But I think the most meaningful fight for any real fighter is the one where he had to face adversity and overcome. Yeah. The one where he was looking like he was about to lose and something rose up in him to come back and win. And so maybe I could apply that to my life where I tried to give up twice hmm. and I'm still here. And um, there's going to be a lot of victories that happen because I'm still here. Victories in my own life, but my goal is to make it a victory in other people's lives. Do you think there's a chance you've subconsciously chosen obstacles? Potentially. And maybe, and maybe even probably. I don't think I chose addiction, even though you have to choose to, to pick up the substance that first time. But once, I just don't act normal compared to other people. Like whenever, like it's that one's too many, but a thousand's not enough. Mm. And... I think I've put myself in challenging positions on purpose, whether it's climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, but doing it for a cause, doing it for a purpose. Yeah. I normally had two the challenge. Like if someone says I can't do something, I was told I couldn't wrestle. I was told I couldn't be a fighter. You can't write a book. You graduated 236 out of 237 in your high school. You're dumb. You're stupid. Mm. You know, and uh, it's like, I'll do it. <laughs> but I guess that's not really answering your question. I, I think... I think you have to be very careful about what you focus on and manifest. And I think that the times I've gone dark or negative or depressed, I think I totally have manifested more shit, like yeah. more bad things coming. Because some people, hard shit happens on repeat. Yeah. I just wonder if that's, is that just like destiny? Are they just lucky? Is it a lucky charm thing? Are they blessed? Do they have angels on their shoulders? It's, and I don't expect you to have an answer. It's just a general well, Some people do do self-sabotage. And, and I remember... In addiction, it almost seemed like relapse happened. This last time, it was whenever something bad happened, right? Like the divorce. Mm -hmm. But it's seemingly before that, it was almost after good things. So it was almost like self-sabotage. Or I would just let my guard down. And think, like in the cycle of addiction, you start off with the first use. The allergy is set off to where then you go on your spree and then after your spree, you're either broke as a joke or you're about to lose everything or you're out of the drugs or you're cashed out. And then you emerge remorseful. You feel terrible. If you were hooked up to a lie detector, you would honestly make this firm resolution and you would pass. It goes from emerging remorseful to this firm resolution. I promise I'm never going to do this again. I promise to you, my wife. I promise to you, God. I promise to myself. I promise to my family. I'll never use again. They'll completely pass it. They will. They really mean it. But all of a sudden they get restless, irritable, and discontented. I had to figure out what discontented mean. And the analogy I kind of came up with or we talked about at rehab was like, discontents, you're thirsty. Discontented is there's not enough water in the fucking world to quench the thirst that I have. Mm. And so whenever you get in this mental obsession of, I can use this just once and I can stop. I can, it can be one and done. 
I'm, I'm going to prove it to myself. I'm going to prove it to them that I can drink like a normal person. I can smoke pot like a normal person. I can take pills like a normal person. Or I need it now because I have an injury and a surgery and the doctor says I can have it. It's like you trick yourself and then you get back in that cycle again over and over and over. And it seemed like my big relapses besides this last one was oftentimes after like something good happened. Like uh, I won a fight. Or fighters and wrestlers, you, you, we have this terminology of like having a reset. I just need to reset. I worked hard. It was a long camp. I just need to reset. You know, one day, two days, and then right back on the horse. Get back in the gym. But for me, I can never do it just one or two days. Because once that substance entered my body, it was like off to the races. And so I think um, I would let my guard down. I would want to reset. I would trick myself. The addict's mind will trick itself into killing itself slowly Mm. or quickly. And so um, I think that was my biggest problem, letting my guard down, tricking myself into I'll prove it to myself. Because with certain substances, I could. Or I'd just switch, right? you juggle. You're like, oh, I can't drink anymore. I'll switch to pot. I can't go to pot. I'll switch to Xanax or Oxy and you just bounce from one thing to another, and then you think, oh, I nicked that one, so I can go to this one. Yeah. And it's like, oof, it's a, it's a dangerous game to play. I really appreciate you sharing all this, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, your authenticity and taking me into places that I'd, I'm, I haven't been to the mountains that you've been to the top of, so I appreciate getting to share the vantage point with you. Wow, that's an incredible way to put it. Thank you. Mm. That honors me, and I'm humbled and... I appreciate it. It was and we a privilege. Didn't, we didn't get to talk about any. Uh, we need to do it again if you're yeah, open, if you're open to it. We, no, we, round two, round two. Round we'll be two. talking about ding, ding, ding. all of the pygmy business and yeah. all of the fighting and all yeah. of the. We've done goddamn Rogan's podcast more than probably anybody. Yeah. So there's like there's like a whole other side that I'd really like to dig into. Cool. But there's just so much depth in that side that we sure. that we went into. So I appreciate you being so open with sharing all Absolutely, that. man. Thank you so much. I've heard from a lot of people that I love that they love you. And so uh, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your tribe that's here listening. Um, hope that they keep coming back, that they, if they like this episode, they share it or share any of the others and subscribe, all that different stuff, you know, because you're a good dude. Never had a, anyone do acro yoga with me like that. Pick me up so easily. I'm normally picking up everyone else easily, and you just had me up in the air. That's a for, weird sensation being a huge was. guy getting picked up, isn't it? Yeah, I'm used to doing it to everybody else. Absolutely. It's my forte. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I've never had someone pick me up as easily and as long as you did. I was in the air for at least 10 minutes. For people listening out there, if you see a huge person, they'd really <laughs> like to be picked up, even if yeah. they might not say it. It's yeah. a gratifying sensation to be send, a large send person. Send them our way. They'll, they'll have a, a, a more pleasurable experience with you than me. But, is there uh, anything that you would leave people with if there was a person that was kind of feeling like they are in a really dark place and they do feel lonely and they feel disconnected and they feel apathetic and they feel like there's just like, what's the point of this game that we're in here? If they're in that place and they just, it feels like, you know, just what's the point? What's, how do you communicate to a person like that? You know, I wish I could have talked to Brian or um, Christmas Day or the 26th yeah. um, when he took his life or Marquise two days ago because he took his life yesterday. But I would tell him that there's purpose in your pain. There's purpose in your pain. You have a purpose. You might not see it yet, but it's there. Mm-hmm. And it might just be this little spark or this little ember. But if you fan that flame 
Just like with the pygmies, they'll take a leaf or a plate and they'll waft a single ember and then all of a sudden it becomes this huge flame. It's like, I feel like my purpose is to put love and compassion in action and to live to love and to fight for people and like keep fighting. Don't give up. Don't tap out. Come get a hug. Just know that you're loved even if you don't feel it for yourself, someone else has it for you. And you can borrow that for a little bit until it becomes your own or, or, or just, just know when a kindness of a stranger happens, they might not know the battle that you're fighting. But like, there's a reason they were kind to you. It's because you deserve that kindness, so please show it to yourself. If you live to love, I, I believe you'll love to live. So don't have your head on a swivel looking for the next paycheck or the next fancy car or the next somebody else, the next girl, the next guy. Like, have your head on a swivel just looking to make a difference. How can I serve? How can I give? Who can I love? And as you start doing that, I feel like you start to have more purpose and you start to love yourself a little more because you find out, hey, I'm pretty, I'm an all right guy. And so my word for this year is healing. And so that's what I would leave people with is, for me, this is a year to heal. Last year was a year to experience discipline. That didn't come till halfway through, but healing for me is three parts. I have to be healed by something greater than myself. I have to allow the divine God, source, creator to heal me. And if I connect a source, then I'm no longer a reservoir, I'm a river. And so I, I think before I, I would connect and disconnect, connect and disconnect. And I'd pour out and I'd empty out and I'd be empty and then I would be susceptible, I'd be vulnerable, I'd relapse. Or I'd go into depression or spiral. But if you just stay connected to source, it's like love can come in and love can go out and you're not going to run out of it. It's a never-ending thing. It's, a, it's abundant. Like this pie just keeps getting bigger and bigger. You, you, my friend, or you, the person listening, you're a mighty rushing river. Just stay connected to source and allow that to heal you, and then love yourself. So you got to take self, self-care self is not selfish, so heal yourself. That's a priority. You got to take time for healing like we did before we even started this podcast. Yeah. Took time for ourselves to center, to ground. And then I would say the third thing, so let the divine heal you. You take responsibility in healing yourself, and then heal others. That's the third one, heal others. Help people heal. Because as those people heal, that, that allows you to heal. When you see people heal, you heal. And then I think healed people heal people. It's not your job to heal people, but you can assist, you can facilitate, you can encourage, you can empower someone in their healing journey. So healed people heal people. And you even just becoming more healed yourself, yeah. just through attunement of being around each other, you naturally become a healer just by being in the room. Yeah. If you do your work, you come into a room and we're, we're continually forming each other. You know, so I make a facial expression. You, you feel that inside. Mm-hmm. I make a postural pattern. I, 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 I emote a certain way. I'm emoting into you. Yeah. And so it's, wow. like, it's like, it's always, you don't, I don't think that, that you need to be so much or I need to be so much in the doing of healing you know, you can be in the being, and that's that's enough, right? Yeah, be a human being, right? Like a human in the what semicolon or colon being? Like, yeah, right. Like be a human and and be happy with how you're being. Like 
guess I would say it is like, we aren't these human beings having a spiritual experience. We're actually like spiritual beings having a human experience. And so like, as we're in these meat suits, let's connect with that spirit inside of us and let that radiate and love others that are around us, but love ourselves. Don't neglect ourselves. Don't, don't reject love like I would. I would. I would deny it for myself. I'd give it away, but I'd, I'd like stiff arm it. Mm-hmm. I don't deserve it. I think I'd, I'd imagine you can only receive as much love as you love yourself. Right. It's like that. The loving of yourself is what carves out the vessel to receive. Wow, that's pretty wild to think about because I was pretty good at loving, but I was very hard at receiving. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I could only allow in what I would do for myself. Yeah. Now I'm starting to love myself, so I've, I've felt more love in my life than I ever have. Mm-hmm. It's pretty dope. I like it now. <laughs> the last thing that's not a question, it's just an interesting thing that I was thinking of. It's it's so fascinating to think how many people are going through so many different experiences right now. And maybe we're all kind of living the same experience, one love, one consciousness, whatever, and it's, you know, different nodes, a part of the same chart, whatever. But you were in Mexico April 5th, mm-hmm. and I was at my place in Santa Monica, and I was probably skateboarding or some fruity shit like that. You know, and you were out there surfing in your tights, surfing in my tights, <laughs> whacking off something, you know, just nonsensical, yeah. you know. And you're out there in that position of about to, to, you know, exit. And it's just such an interesting thing. Like, you know, there's like the, the you know, be kind because everyone's fighting a great war inside or something like that, paraphrasing. Yeah. Have you heard that, that, yeah. that quote before? Do you know how to say it right? I think it's something like that. Be kind because everyone's, every, everyone's fighting inside. a certain. A battle you don't know or something. Battle like that. inside, yeah. you know, and so it's like walking down the street. That day, you walked down the street and you looked like a normal guy. And you've been on Rogan's podcast eight times and yeah. professional superstar stud yeah. UFC ultimate like fucking legend, badass, accomplished all the things you'd need at age thirty two or thirty three, whatever you were at that point. Thirty two at that point. Thirty two. Birthday's coming up. Yeah, you know, like. So people seeing you, it would be you. One would likely never think like, "Oh, he's that's where he's going," and so it just it just like strikes me as the the value of just really weaving kindness into your every moment. I would say maybe this is a way for someone to start, a way for someone to start having that head on a swivel, looking to make a difference. Yeah, maybe someone right now has a name that pops into their head of someone they know that's facing a battle. Or just someone that you intuitively feel, like someone you know, someone you need to reach out to. Maybe it's a few people. You know, someone you know that's going through a tough time, just reach out, check in on them, see how they're doing. It could be a quick phone call if they're out of state, but if it's someone close by, like make a plan to go see them, get together. Mm. Uh, I remember a, f- a friend told me, because he knew what I went through, that he called one of his friends when the guy had gotten out his gun, loaded it, and was getting ready to kill himself. Mm. And he knew he had to call his friend. And he called his friend for some reason and said, how you doing? I want you to know I love you. That's basically all he said right off the bat. How you doing? I love you. I want you to know I love you. Hmm. And the guy broke, started crying, said they had a gun in his hand, about to kill himself. Wow. You never know the impact you might have on somebody. And uh, so yeah, and if you're in that place, reach out. There's suicide hotlines if you don't think you have anyone to call. But you do share with somebody. I remember I told my mom that I was thinking about hurting myself. And the look that it gave her, or that I did attempt suicide. I got a, I got a text from her today. Maybe we can end. 
with that, but she had texted me because I let her know about my friend that took his life. And she goes, that is so heartbreaking about Marquise. I cannot imagine what Jim and Susan are going through. I've not called them yet because I figured yesterday was crazy for them. And I'm at a meeting. Finish at three, I'll call them this afternoon. I don't even know what to say other than that I love them and I'm so sorry. And then she turns it to me. Are you sure you are okay? I love you and I miss you. I don't understand suicide because I've never felt that way. I pray that you are good and that you will never be in a place to take your own life. I love you. I want you to know I love you so much. I miss you. She's going to come up to the funeral with me. But you know, like she took a moment to acknowledge them and their pain, wanting to be there for them. But then she knows that me and my pain and what I've gone through and how I've attempted suicide twice, she wants to check in on me too. You know, how are you really doing? Yeah. And I was able to tell her, you know, um, I was able to tell her, I love you, exclamation point, I miss you. I will never be in that state of mind again. I have experienced, and then all caps, I've experienced healing. I love you. And I said, I would just call them to say that you love them. Be sweet, be strong, be sensitive, be kind, be love. That's who my mom is, and that's who they need right now. I love you. I'm glad that you're here, man. Me too. I'm glad that you're here. Um, all right, now that we're both crying like a bunch <laughs> of pansy asses, um, I guess, what do we do from here? Wrap it up? <laughs> yeah, wrap it up. <laughs> you hear that? Safe sex, boys and girls. Safe wrap sex. it up. <laughs> I love you too, man. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to the future, man, whatever yeah. that looks like. Yeah, I'm excited to hang out with you more. For sure, man. Where should people go? How can they support the Fight for the Forgotten? How yeah. do they support people that need water? How do they support sure. our, you? Our, our hub support? is fightfortheforgotten.org. And then we have an Instagram, Fight for the Forgotten. We need to keep up with that more, but it's it's still there. And then my Instagram is just the big pick me. Mm. We didn't get into that, but I used to be the Viking because of how I look. Yeah. Um, and I fight like a Viking, but the pygmies named me Efeosa Mabutimangbo. And so <laughs> Efeosa means the man who loves us. And I love that one. But Mabutimangbo, uh, that means just simply the big pick me. So that's great. Yeah, so if you do the big and then P, I should be the first thing that pops up. It's P Y. I covet. I covet your pygmy name. There you go. You got to work on that. You the Bible says it. don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> don't Brother, I love you, man. I love you. All right. And, and if people went to the fight for the forgotten, what would they be supporting? Um, they'd be supporting why, why land, water, and food initiatives. Uh, we've gotten back over three thousand acres of land for the pygmies in their name. And in Uganda right now, we're building, so we drill wells, um, and but we're starting our first home project where we're building 32 homes for 32 families that have never owned a home. Mm. They're evicted from the rainforest that they've always lived in. They were the protectors of the forest, the people of the forest. They only took what they needed, and they never poached, mm. but they were evicted. So they were put on less than one acre of land uh, behind a slum. Literally human raw sewage was flowing through it, and they'd have to pick up their fire and move it and got sick, they would die, they gave them nowhere to bury the land, so they were burying their dead right on top of the one acre of land they had to live on. And so they are walking over mounds of their dead. We just bought them 48 new acres of land because of Dustin Poirier. Uh, we've drilled some new wells out there, uh, have three little farms started there. And um, Didn't McGregor donate as well? 
Yes, uh, but he donated straight to Dustin. Oh, okay. So, and it was dope. It was awesome. And then um, the 32 homes will have, there'll be two bedroom homes at least. They'll have a dining room, a kitchen. They'll have a back patio, a front patio. They'll have French drains to make sure there's no flooding. They'll be able to actually have a home for the first time. And they'll have tapped water to it, which is so crazy for them. Mm. So we have a lot to be grateful for. And if people wanted to donate to that, they could enter a raffle for Buffalo Trace Whiskey. They could win the Disney World experience of uh, the whiskey lover. It's only for 15 more days, so I don't know if this will come out in that time. And then, uh, uh, but if it does, um, you know, they could win a dope raffle. I'll be there with them in victory, walking in freedom as they taste whiskey. I'll be enjoying it, right. watching. Yeah. Other than that, they can donate straight to Fight for the Forgotten. It goes into our general fund. We decide where the most need is. We are also doing bullying and suicide prevention here in the states. We do that mainly through martial arts academies, but we've been in over 100 schools developing curriculums for schools and um we might do something for for brian sykes family and uh, maybe jim and susan my second parents who just lost their son incredible man yeah all right you, you gotta get to bed yeah you too you want to cuddle we should have a cuddle touch is my first primary love language we'll do a cuddle puddle we'll do a little cuddle puddle um and uh thank you all so much for tuning in yeah over now Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Justin is an absolute legend and gem and kind-hearted human being. And it's such a pleasure to get to share his voice here with you guys. If there's anybody in your life that you think could use a conversation like this, then a kind thing that you may do would be send it over to him and it may have more impact than you think. Such an important conversation, especially considering all of the happenings in the world over the last 10 months. And uh, it's crazy when you look at the statistics of how many people are hurting themselves. Um, it's, it's really unbelievable. So I'm so grateful to get to share this conversation with y'all. And I'm so grateful for y'all sharing it with the rest of the world because we need each other more than ever, I would say. I think that might be it. I so greatly appreciate you guys jumping onto the Online Method Online program. The six-week program is built for you if you're interested in having a step-by-step -step guide on how to mobilize your joints, starting from your ankles to your knees to your hips, up through your spine, shoulders. If you feel any stiffness, rigidity, pain, aches, and things of the sort, then the six-week Align Method program is geared specifically for you. You can find that at alignpodcast.com slash courses. Thanks for love on the Alignment book. Thanks for love on this podcast. And thanks for doing you. I look forward to whispering into your sweet, sultry ear holes next week. Bye.